It's time to join Montana's very own and your voice for agriculture, Talkin' Ag Lane Nordland, for today's LaneCast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to more conversations here on the Western Ag Network. I'm Lane Nordland, and standing by is Russell Nimitz from his home studio. And we're going to be talking about a few of the top headlines that we covered this week on the Western Ag Network. Thanks for joining us on our streaming platforms on YouTube, Facebook, and the audio portion, which is located on the Langcast Ag Podcast on whatever device you listen to your podcast. Uh, and as, as I mentioned, Russell Nimitz is standing by in the home studio. Uh, Russ, I tell you what, it's, uh, it's officially summer here in 2023. It's been a busy time for the Western Ag Network team, but uh, hey, it's already the, the first part of July and uh, things have just been pretty crazy around, around the network and, and our, our coverage area as we cover the West. How are things in your neck of the woods this week? Well, it's sure green down here in southern Montana, where, of course, I'm based at. And, and just like you and, and some of our other teammates, I mean, as we've made our travels across Western Egg Network country uh, in May and June, I think the talk amongst ranchers and farmers, besides some of those big headlines that we're going to talk about uh, during this program, has been all of this recent and beautiful moisture that has just greened the countryside up, making our crops look good getting them ready for harvest, and of course, uh, that summer pasture that our livestock uh, so desperately need. <laughs> that That's so true, because uh, we've been waiting about a week and a half, two weeks to cut. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm finding a few minutes here to, to come inside. Uh, we're going to be in full force out in the field tomorrow. Uh, there's no rain in the forecast, which is nice. I'm, I'm not cussing the rain, because we've been praying for it for some time but uh i really need to get a hay crop put up and uh who would have thought our dry land was still not going to get cut this close to the fourth of july around uh, north central montana where i call home <laughs> yeah absolutely you know the other thing that all this moisture and heat is uh raising a lot of and and you and i being from montana's highlight know a thing or two about is mosquitoes right yeah. i mean uh there's going to be a lot of mosquitoes across our region and and just kind of a reminder to uh, for horse owners out there with uh, the mosquito season upon us, to, if they haven't already done so, make sure those equine friends are properly vaccinated against West Nile virus. And, you know, for those of us that uh, grew up in mosquito country, you know, one of our colognes growing up was, was DEET. <laughs> so it's uh, always good to have a can of off or DEET or something like that in the, in the pickup cabs, swather cabs and, and you, my friend, too, as you get ready to get out there and cut some of that dry land hay. Well, I don't live up on, I'm like I said, not not on the high line here today, but I, I call that uh, high line cologne, the the, uh, the off-brand spray. Because, <laughs> um, and they're bad here. I mean, we've had so much sitting water out here in the field and whatnot. It's, uh, I'm glad that... Uh, Hopefully it's heating up a little bit and, and they're going to hang out in the shade a little bit. But hey, as we mentioned, we're going to share a few of our top stories that we had on radio, TV and our digital platforms throughout the week. We're going to talk about lab growing chicken here today. Um, also, a great friend retiring from the farm broadcasting industry. He's not fully going away, but uh, you'll know exactly who we're talking about here in just a little bit. Brazilian beef. It's always a big talking point at our cattle grower conventions. We're going to talk about that. Waters of the U.S., uh, the BLM's proposed comment period, uh, farm bill updates, what the spring wheat is looking like, and 
Also, Russell's been hard at work uh, discussing the Snake Rivers dams, and uh, we're, that's going to be kind of our feature conversation here at the at the end of our, our chat here today on our weekend programming. But again, thanks for joining us here on YouTube, Facebook, and if you're tuning into the audio in the Lancast Ag Podcast, we, we truly uh, thank you for coming and, and joining us here today. We're just trying to bring you the top stories uh, in all these different uh different uh, social media type settings and uh i feel after this week we should be uh sponsored by coors original but uh we'll we'll, <laughs> we'll save that for after yeah. uh hey after i get all my idiot cubes stacked up here at our place and in the round bale stacked as well and you know ross i, I should mention uh two great sponsors uh, that are helping bring uh, the, the coverage here this week our friends at ag risk advisors providing all those risk management tools to producers out in the countryside along with the national cattlemen's beef association uh for bringing you these conversations here today but uh, Russ, one of those top conversations that we talked about earlier this week, and actually for quite some time, is the the lab-growing meat, uh, the fake meat, uh, the, the cultured meat in the laboratory. And uh, this week, USDA actually gave the seal of approval to two different companies, Good Meat and Upside Foods. They are going to be allowed to sell their products to consumers and again, lab-grown meat, it's cultivated real animal cells in a laboratory. Uh, and that USDA announcement came just on the heels of a no-questions letter earlier this year from the Food and Drug Administration. And, you know, cell-based meat, it, it comes from stem cells, from animal fat or muscle tissues of animals. They're cultivated there in the laboratory. And I did a poll on Instagram, Russ, and uh, I, I asked people, would you eat lab-raised meat, specifically chicken, since that's the one that, that's got the uh, seal of approval? And 98% and of my followers said, no, they would not eat it. And, and actually, a few cattle producers said, yes, they would, just so they knew what it tasted like, so they could talk more about their real natural beef that is one ingredient that they raise out in the countryside. But I guess, would you taste the, the lab-raised meat? That's a question I have for you, I guess. Well, I probably would give it a taste, just just like some of those others in your poll, just to confirm that, you know, why in the world would we want to even do something like this, eat something out of a laboratory, out of a test tube, when America's hardworking uh, cattle producers raise uh, safe and reliable, not to mention delicious four-legged critters, <laughs> not just across our region, but across America. And I just shake my head and I've kind of got a, you know, a, a frustrated look on my face this week, especially as we head into one of the biggest grilling seasons, uh, times of the year, the 4th of July holiday, and why we're even having to talk about something like this uh, is beyond me. You know, it's, it's crazy because I get that there's some, you know, originality or some DNA, if you will, from the actual four-legged bovines out there, but it's still nothing, nothing, regardless of what breed of cattle you're talking about, like that, that is actually raised on Mother Earth's land. 
Well, and you know, it's so interesting because obviously the, the chicken was given the seal of approval, but a recent UC Davis uh, study that just came out and in a disclaimer, it hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but this, uh, we talked about this about a month ago. Uh, the, uh, UC Davis uh, study shows that lab grown meats carbon footprint could be potentially worse than retail beef just because it takes so many different resources and input to run it through the laboratory process. And, uh, uh, and, and which, again, that's a lot of the argument is that uh, that beef or chicken have a have a bigger carbon uh, uh, impact, uh, carbon footprint, excuse me, when it comes to that. But uh, I think a lot of the time folks just jump on board because they want to see livestock producers go out of out of business. But it's so interesting in, in that study that they really asked the question, would these uh, lab growing uh, uh items would it be a food item or a pharmaceutical item because currently it's being developed as a pharmaceutical and uh so that so that's just interesting to see how that may play out but you know for me i i i would probably try it just so i could talk about it and share my experience but at the end of the day i'm going to stick with the real natural thing i'm going to stick with beef it's out in our pasture i know where it comes from i know what 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 went into creating it and and i know it's uh it's natural resource and environmental impact uh, personally so I don't know, but uh, Facebook, Russ, doesn't really like us sharing those stories. <laughs> um, well, it's, it's interesting, Lane, because a lot of times, you know, when it comes to these ag headlines that you and I and the rest of our team cover every single day all year round, you know, some of these big headlines just float under the radar of Facebook and, and other social media platforms. And, and with the case of lab-grown chicken, I mean, when that came out, a lot in the industry, a lot of those those of us in the know, so to speak, we didn't even know it really came out because the whole world was focused on the North Atlantic <laughs> and uh, that missing Titan submersible that, you know, had tried to, to go down and, and visit the, the sunken Titanic. And I think, you know, whether it's lab grown meat or a huge, you know, ruling either from USDA or FDA or in most cases, the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, so many times these decisions come out, you know, during quiet times or they're, you know, they're hit underneath the rug of another mainstream headline. And then we're left afterwards kind of a, in a reactionary mode, like, what do we do instead of being proactive and, and being able to truly cover a story? But yeah, you're right. I mean, so many of these egg headlines, livestock more specifically, Facebook just refuses to help us get the real message out there on behalf of America's food producers. Yeah. So YouTube seems to be a lot better on that front. And, and maybe, I don't know, maybe I should be wearing a, a tinfoil hat for some of the folks <laughs> tuning in, but you know, when, when we look at these, like the, 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 the TV segment that we turned into digital talking about these stem cell uh, cultured meat for uh, the lab grown chicken, um, it, it had 13 shares and 682 views on our, our Western Ag Network Facebook page. If if a story had 13 shares as a reel on other ones, it'd be up into the few thousands just on 13 shares. It's just so interesting how the algorithm works at not pushing out uh, that, that type of content. And we see that all the time. People say I'm crazy, but we can put something up about a family ranch talking about livestock production and sustainability. And they've been on the land for years. And Facebook algorithms won't push it out. And uh, so 
Again, very interesting. But, you know, since we're on that Facebook topic, Russell, uh, I, I have noticed a lot. We, I, I think ag, ag uh, folks in rural America are just so trusting of each other. And uh, uh, we're seeing so many Facebook uh, uh, duplicate accounts. People say, we, I got yeah. hacked. Somebody added me on Facebook. No, somebody duplicated your account. They took your picture, created a separate account with your name on it. That's not a hack. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of that across the board, but rural America, we, we just trust each other. And so, oh, so-and-so got a new Facebook page. They add them. But we did see some people get hacked recently. And these hackers are pretty genius because they're putting ag products up like, hey, we're trying to sell our horse trailer. And I'm not going to say our friend's name, but his account got hacked. And I'm like, gosh, darn, he's got a gooseneck trailer for sale. It's only like three years old. I'm, I'm going to call him. Then I saw the price of $3,200. I'm like, oh, he got hacked. But there were so many yeah. people that were sharing that post and this poor guy's locked out of his account. And uh, I don't know. It, it just, uh, I would love to buy cheap equipment. I've been trying to find a, a hay bind pull behind swather to have on hand here. And uh, you can't believe how many fake uh, products they have out there targeting ag people. But uh, uh, I do see a lot of animal rights people that try to like flag our stuff and have us click on links and, and try to try to gain our access. And, uh, it, it's not fun. You just got to kind of be on your toe. It's almost like, you know, that one cow that you're trying to get their calf tagged and you know, you can kind of trust her, but you got to be on your toes. <laughs> Everybody just needs to be on their toes on Facebook and not click on yeah. anything. Yeah. Pretty soon that mother cow is jumping over a eight foot high gate and, and is eating your lunch in the corner of the corral, right? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, as powerful of a tool that social media is, I think it's up to all of us, including those of us in the ag media to really continue to do our diligence and make sure that, you know, what we're sharing or what we're putting on online or what we're quoting as actual stories is in fact from a real credible source and and not one of these uh, hackers or people that have cloned you know your profile or or whatnot but we certainly don't want to scare people away from from nope. using social and digital media because i mean it truly is paving blazing a new trail kind of so to speak in in how we how we all communicate even in the egg industry yeah, we use it. I, I hate Facebook. I hate it all. But uh, we got to use it for, for what yeah. we do. Look at us streaming here today. But, you know, on another note, Russell, uh, this past week, uh, we uh, we saw the announcement that that many didn't know about. But those that uh, follow farm broadcasting and, and know a very familiar voice for, for several decades, uh, we had a friend announce his retirement and uh, you've had the opportunity to, to work with him on set. Uh, who am I talking about here today, Russ? Well, it's somebody who certainly didn't have to worry about Facebook or social media or digital media back when he started his career uh, many, many years ago. But yes, our dear friend, uh, Max Armstrong, uh, announced his retirement uh, here just recently after nearly 50 some years in actual farm broadcasting and over 50 years, I believe, in, in radio and television. And of course, especially in the Midwest, in that greater Chicago land, WGN country and the heartland of America. You know, Max was a well-known voice and face along with uh, his teammate for the better part of his career, Orion Samuelson. Uh, you know, they hosted 
you know, the ag reports on WGN radio, which is just a blowtorch across the Midwest. And of course, they they hosted and teamed up to produce a, a weekly television program for a lot of years under the brand U.S. Farm Report. And then just here recently, you know, they they've been doing television reports uh, under their new company this week in agribusiness. And yeah, it's going to be, you know, when you hear some of these legends, Lane, retiring and uh, deciding to, you know, do something different than farm broadcasting, it, it catches a lot of us off guard because, you know, those of us that were that were kids growing up on farms and ranches uh, across America, you know, we tuned into their televised reports. And a lot of us, that's kind of where we at least kind of grew into some sort of interest in pursuing a career in in agricultural journalism or broadcasting. And certainly Max Armstrong was one of them. And just a salt of the earth type of guy, as, as you know. I mean, they don't get any better than Max Armstrong, uh, except, you know, for a lot of those John Deere lovers out there, they might have a little bit of a, a complaint because of his his absolute passion for, for Case and International and red paint on, on that tractor. But there is no bigger bigger supporter of rural America and serving young people and helping to pave the way, you know, whether it's farm broadcasting or supporting FFA and 4-H and other youth organizations out there than, than Max Armstrong. And, and yeah, I did, I did have the opportunity a few times to actually fly back to Chicago and, and co-host this week in agribusiness with them. I think I was actually one of the very first individuals to uh, actually sit in uh, Orion Samuelson's broadcast chair when he couldn't be there and uh, help Max and his team, you know, produce their, their weekly, their weekly nationwide television program. And, and what an honor that that truly was. And, and so we certainly only wish Max and of course his family, the very best in, in retirement. And like you said, he's not going to go away completely, you know, and visiting with some of his teammates there, you know, he's still going to do Max's tractor shed and and still, uh, you know, help out the new full time host, uh, Mike Pearson, in, uh, you know, doing some some fill in work. And, and I would have to think we're still going to hear him on the radio just a little bit, too. No, truly a legend in, in the industry. And, and I should take the the opportunity to announce my retirement. Uh, uh, <laughs> You better not. I just had my birthday, so we can uh, I can retire right now. I can I can file. Is that how you yeah, do it? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're you're a contract employee, so you don't even really have to give me any sort of notice. <laughs> I'll just not be looking for any of your reports anytime soon. You know, I think a great comparison of uh, Max Armstrong and Orion Samuelson and Russell Newman's and Lane Nordland. They're they're like the Nordstroms to our we're like the kmart special compared to those guys right yeah we kind of are but <laughs> but every once in a while we do give out a nice blue light special so <laughs> we try to i i don't think max armstrong ever had to turn his monitor on be, be, behind him during a report <laughs> like i just did it timed out yeah. on me but yeah. uh Hey, Ross, thanks for kind of uh, sharing a little more on Max Armstrong and, and of course, uh, a legend in farm broadcasting and a great advocate and voice for those in rural America and red tractors, which is which is great to see. I think we see too many green tractors out there all the time. There's nothing wrong with any of that equipment as long as it works uh, right. for all of our enthusiasts out there. But 
Hey, we have a lot to talk about coming up. Brazilian beef imports, waters of the U.S., the BLM's proposed rule. And hey, stick around. We're going to go into depth on the Snake River dams and uh, how important they are, not only for uh, getting grain down the road, but for feeding the nation and the world. But first, we're going to take a few moments and, and hear some words from our friends at Ag Risk Advisors. Ready for a real PRF partner? He was willing to track us for a year and provide that data back to us for a year. That's a guy making a pretty big investment. At AgRisk Advisors, this isn't our first rodeo. We are one of the most experienced in pasture rangeland forage. Honesty, commitment, trust. Many companies use these words. At AgRisk Advisors, we earn them. Again, a big thank you to Ag Risk Advisors for bringing you these conversations here today. I'm Lane Nordland, joined by the one and only Russell Nimitz. We're here with the Western Ag Network. Thanks for joining us on YouTube. If you're on the YouTube app, make sure and subscribe to our channel today. We're going to be bringing you conversations not only here on Sunday morning, but every single day of the week, bringing you the most important headlines impacting uh, producers in Western Ag Network country, but also across the nation as well. Um, Russ, hey, we've been uh, talking about about uh, Brazilian beef imports, well, probably since before I was born, but uh, a lot of headlines coming up uh, in terms of congressional hearings, legislation that almost all livestock groups are behind to really limit those imports or halt the imports based on animal health concerns from the uh, South American nations. But uh, uh, what, what was that headline in terms of Brazilian beef that you shared on air this week? Well, it truly is a big, big issue for the U.S. livestock industry, more specifically right now for the cattle business guys out there. Um, and as you mentioned, it isn't very often you get bipartisan support in either the House or the Senate or even bipartisan support in the countryside amongst all the different cattle organizations out there. But when it comes to this issue, you know, Brazilian either live cattle or Brazilian beef imports, this surely is one of them. You know, and just a few days ago, the powerful U.S. Senate Finance Committee held a hearing on this very subject to really dive into, you know, the, the do's and don'ts of uh, what is going on in South America regarding either, you know, the actual on the ground live cattle production with ranchers down there or on the beef side from some of the likes like JBS and, and another large meat processors in getting that that fresh beef or frozen beef, you know, being allowed into this, into this countryside. And one of those testifying on behalf of America's cattle producers during that powerful Senate Finance Committee hearing was Montana's own Leo McDonald Jr. We didn't do it by degrading our environment through illegal deforestation and poor farming and grazing practices, nor did we use it by using, using forced labor both slave and child labor, or by bribing meat inspectors to improperly launder and dump beef into the international market and even our own markets that had had fraudulent laboratory checks, or by exporting product that was rampant food safety concerns 
including the finding of blood clots, bone chips, abscesses, and I can go on. That's been a chronic problem with Brazil. Or by failing to notify our world communities in a timely matter when we had FMD outbreaks, foot and mouth disease, or BSC. No, the U.S. cattle industry didn't go under those corruptive practices. And Lane, of course, with the heart of the summer business meeting session uh, for some of the national cattle organizations already upon us, of course, U.S. Cattlemen's will be meeting in Reno here in just a few days. Uh, NCBA at the end of the month will be having their summer business meeting in San Diego. And then even in August, RCAF USA will be meeting in the Black Hills of South Dakota. So this is one of those big issues that I'm sure will be addressed at all three of these busy summer conventions for three of America's largest cattle organizations. No, very, very true. Thanks for that update. And, you know, since you had Leo on, I, I had this picture over against my wall here, and I found this in a thrift shop down in uh, uh, Bozeman, of all places. And it's for one of the Midland Bull Test sales. I don't know what year it was. But it, it says 15 years from now, we won't know what pickup he'll be driving or what music he'll be listening to. But you can be sure if he is in the cattle business, he'll be using or benefiting from the Midland program. I thought that was so dang cool. And I just didn't want some out-of-stater to buy it and put it in their Yellowstone-themed <laughs> mansion up at the Yellowstone Club. So uh, I uh, I bought that. I uh, And I'm... I, I don't even know if I've ever told Leo about that, but uh, I just thought that was so cool. And I, I don't even remember what I paid for it, but it was for sale there in Bozeman. And, and I'm like, yep, that, that little Leo and, and his family have uh, ha had a big role in, in agriculture, not, not only in Montana, but across the nation in the livestock industry and on the advocacy front. I, I just thought I'd share that. Yeah. I, we might put a little better picture of that up there, but uh, I, I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I didn't want some out of stater to, to put that up or put in a cracker barrel or something. That is super cool. I mean, and Leo truly is a legend in the U.S. beef cattle industry. And during that hearing, you know, one of the very first things he did was recognize uh, Iowa GOP Senator Chuck Grassley, who was uh, uh, sitting in on that hearing. I think he is a, a member of the Senate Finance Committee. And he's just, Leo specifically, uh, you know, acknowledged Senator Grassley for all of his years and hard work, you know, making sure that you know, America's beef cattle producers have an industry to uh, to survive and, and still participate in. And uh, Leo mentioned, you know, uh, all those years ago in the 90s, you know, when 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 Leo really started getting more and more national traction out there, when he started to address all those uh, live Canadian imports coming in and traveling through uh, states like Montana and uh, were at that time, you know, flooding our domestic cattle market with uh, imported live product uh, out of Canada. Yep. Well, again, uh, a great, great update there on that front, and a uh, little, little fun there with with Leo. I, would Chuck Grassley would would he eat uh, the lab grown meat? I, I doubt I he would. I think Chuck Grassley would literally pick up the lab grown meat either in the test tube or <laughs> between two pieces of hamburger buns and probably throw it across the room at uh, one of his colleagues that he probably 
doesn't care too much about. <laughs> uh, well, let, let's stick out in, in Washington, Russ, where, again, uh, a lot of issues that have impacted producers for, for many years and, and waters of the U.S. That has been one of those key issues that producers have advocated against for, for several years in the overreach of, of federal regulations. And uh, waters of the U.S. definitely been, has been in the headlines, you know, uh, during the Trump administration, the, the Obama Otis rule was repealed and replaced when President Biden took office. The Trump rule was then removed and replaced with the Wotus 2023 rule. But uh, all that was put on uh, on hold with the U.S. Supreme Court uh, just a, a few weeks ago, ruling in favor of the Sackett family out of Iowa and really uh, putting the Wotus rule on hold in, in the, the significant nexus test in which the Bureau of, or the, uh, I want to say Bureau of Land Management, we're going to talk about them later, yeah. uh, <laughs> that the Army Corps and the EPA were utilizing to, to determine what really was a Waters of the U.S. under the Clean Water Act. Uh, well, just uh, this week, the EPA announced in a court filing that they were going to rewrite the 2023 Biden Waters of the U.S. rule on or before September 1st of this year. That comes after the Supreme Court ruling in May that struck down the Biden rule. Uh, this information all came from a motion filed in federal court in North Dakota. Uh, the EPA was requesting that the court uh, uh, not grant an injunction uh, for 26 states where uh, where the, the rule is on hold. Of course, an injunction in the North Dakota court and then an injunction in Texas, 26 states, and many of which we cover here in Western Ag Network country. Um, so they uh, essentially they said, we're doing this in good faith. We're going to have a new rule. Let's... Uh, Please just do away with this injunction, and it's costing us too much money. Uh, but at the same time, the EPA and the Biden administration have not officially rolled back the WOTUS rule that the court says is uh, is not following the law. Uh, here, here's a, a comment from a South Dakota rancher and president of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, Todd Wilkinson, on the frustration in which uh, producers are having that that rule hasn't been pulled back, even though they're asking the courts uh, to vacate uh, an injunction in, in the court in North Dakota. When faced with a decision from the Supreme Court saying that you made the wrong choice, EPA, uh, how is it that our administration decides to still force producers to have to spend their money to go in and then seek a uh, 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 legal relief. I, I, I find that just uh, ridiculous. Again, I caught up with Wilkinson during the Montana Stock Growers uh, mid-year meeting about a week and a half ago. And uh, the EPA in its court filing said that they are respectfully requesting that the court stay their case because good cause exists for their request. Federal defendants are developing a new rule to amend the 2023 rule consistent with Sackett. But again, that was a lot of uh, frustration that the court handed that down, Russ. And then uh, they still haven't pulled back that rule or halted it themselves, even though it's on st on stay in, in more than half of, uh, of the states uh, here in the U.S. But uh, a lot of frustration on that Lotus front. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's such a controversial issue, and it's one of those issues that we've been talking about since the Obama presidency. And I think, you know, during your full interview with Todd Wilkinson, he too also mentioned what in the world is going on in Washington, D.C. these days when the nation's highest court, the U.S. Supreme Court, can make a ruling, and yet an administration or a 
congressional folks on both sides of the aisle in both chambers, almost like they ignore it and still plow forward with their own agenda. It leaves a lot of folks wondering what in the heck is going on. Yeah, very, very true. But hey, you know, obviously a big win for for landowners, for farmers and ranchers uh, in in their eyes uh, with that SAC adverse EPA case. But uh, on a more positive note, uh, we are seeing some more opportunities for pulse crop producers here in the U.S. Uh, Russ, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, some big news here of late for U.S. pulse growers like those here in our region. Uh, you know, just a few days ago, uh, the nation of India announced through the World Trade Organization that it was finally going to reduce some of those export hampering tariffs that were really limiting the U.S.'s ability to get our high quality pulses like chickpeas and lentils into the world's largest pulse market. And uh, I was able to catch up with Northern Pulse Growers Association's Vice President, Matt McCabe, out of Ekalaka, Montana. And he explained to me why this was such a big headline for pulse growers like himself. Well, Russell, India imposed retaliatory trade tariffs on chickpea, lentil, and pea exports to India about six years ago and more or less just closed off our biggest export market for all those crops. So this should be a great opportunity to rebuild those relationships with Indian buyers and hopefully help out the market. Now to kind of put it into perspective, just how large of a market, an export market like India is to the U.S. pulse industry, six years ago before those tariffs went into place, the U.S. exported nearly $157 million worth of U.S. pulses into India compared to last year's mere $1 million. So, Lane, that is pretty black and white, just how important these export markets, in this case, for the U.S. pulse industry really are. Yeah, very, very good news. And uh, it's been an issue that has been worked on for, for several years. And so a great time as as those crops, especially in states like Montana, where producers are, Montana is the biggest producer of pulses in, in the nation. And and uh, we've, we've saw some drought and, and whatnot over the last few years in that, that region of our coverage area. So that's very welcome news, especially for folks that have pulses or getting ready, maybe kept pulses in storage, uh, hoping this market would open yeah. up. Uh, a lot of good news on that front. And uh, I was well, actually... one of the things that did come out of it, Lane, on a positive front, if, if we can talk just a second about, I mean, it did kind of force the industry to work with the checkoff side of the pulse industry, whether it's the Montana Pulse uh, Crop Committee or the USA Dry Pea and Little Council to find a home for uh, some of those, not some of those, the majority of the pulses grown in America when that Indian market was all but shut out. And, and you know, they, they really went to work and used producer checkoff dollars to help increase even more demand for those high quality pulses uh, that are raised right here at home with our own domestic uh, customers. Well, as Russ, Russell mentioned, a uh, big, big opportunity for the U.S. pulse industry and, and for the full story on this, just visit us online at Western Ag Network uh, online, of course. Hey, Russ, uh, we were talking about government overreach with that Sackett uh, and uh, the EPA case and, and the uh, WOTUS rule, but 
a rule that just magically appeared uh, earlier this year was the Bureau of Land Management's proposed conservation rule. And for folks that aren't uh, familiar with what uh, this rule is, all of us are on board for conservation, but uh, ranchers and especially federal lands ranchers, the cattle and sheep producers who graze for just a short period of time each year on the nation's federal lands, specifically BLM lands, are pretty upset with the efforts of the Biden administration and the BLM's uh, lead, Tracy Stone Manning, in pushing the proposed rule forward, mainly because there was hardly any stakeholder input. There was only three in-person sessions held in Albuquerque, uh, Reno and Denver, a lot, a lot of folks on BLM in BLM country were not able to be there in person, and uh, that uh, comment period was requested to be extended to actually have some stakeholder input. Uh, uh, advocates like the Public Lands Council they asked for 105 days, I believe, in extension. Well, the BLM gave them 15 days, so they they extended that till July 5th. And uh, Russ, when uh, Paul Humphrey, our videographer, and I were down in Steamboat Springs for the Colorado Cattlemen's Association. We caught up with Colorado's very own Tim Canterbury. He's also a, uh, a, the vice president of the Public Lands Council and, and Sigurd Johans, the uh, uh, director out there with the National Public Lands Council on the policy side. I sat down with him for a full-length interview where we talked about it, but Canterbury really shared his frustration with what they are calling uh, an effort by the government just to push this rule through without stakeholder input. Uh, here's a bit of our conversation from Steamboat Springs last week. There is not one of us that is against conservation. We all live and breathe conservation. So that's not the issue here. The issue is the process that was used. I think that it was totally uh, set up uh, and, and totally um, disregarded the federal land users, especially the grazing, the livestock industry, to hold three meetings in in three states um, and leave all those other folks out, especially when you look at Idaho, Oregon, Washington, the amount of travel that those folks would have had to have undertaken to have taken part in one of those public meetings is totally um, disrespectful and disregarded uh, the livestock industry, the permittees that's affected. And Russ, uh, again, a lot of frustration. And as Canterbury said, producers aren't against conservation, but they're against this uh, this proposed rule that is uh, putting a veil or almost rose-colored glasses over the public's eyes, utilizing the term conservation and uh, pushing a, a rule forward without any uh, stakeholder input. So a lot of frustration there. So that, that's true. Other than higher calf prices, this has been the talk of all of our meetings this year, whether it's a Farm Bureau summer meetings in our uh, our region or our cattle and stock grower meetings, uh, uh, a, a big conversation. And definitely uh, it's still going to be a conversation September 5th through the 7th in Pendleton, Oregon where the Public Lands Council's annual meeting will be held. But uh, you've been hearing it, and I've been hearing it, a lot of frustration in the countryside. Well, yeah, and that comment deadline that we had hoped to get a little bit more than just a, a couple of weeks extension on is, is coming up fast. I think it's, is it either July 5th? Is that right, Lane? Or, or July 15th? I can't remember. But anyways, it's right around the corner. And not only are farmers and ranchers not against conservation, they're leaders in it. And it was just truly almost a slap in the face, you know, by 
by the Interior Department and the Bureau of Land Management where this new conservation rule just magically appeared after all the hard work and, and truly, you know, America's public lands really thought they had been doing the best job possible in having that two-way open door conversation with agency personnel and, and sort, you know, and, and certainly, you know, administrative type personnel, whether it was during the Trump years or here most recently with the Biden folks. Yep. Well, again, it is July 5th. That's the deadline for the proposed uh, uh, BLM rule. Uh, get your comments in. Uh, again, more details can be found at westernagnetwork.com. And we'll have a link to that full uh, conversation with Ken, uh, Tim Canterbury and uh, Seeger Johans there with the Public Lands Council in our description and on all of our YouTube and Facebook pages as well. But, you know, uh, sticking out in Washington, D.C., Farm Bill, Russ, that's, that's been a big topic as of late. And, uh, uh and there's a lot of hope that a farm bill can actually get done before it expires in September this year. Uh, I guess what's it like uh, on that front uh, talking with some of the elected officials out in DC? Yeah, well, they're, they're hoping that they can get one done too, because the current one expires on September 30th of, of this year. And, you know, late last year and, and certainly the beginning of this year, there was a lot of hope and a lot of positive traction and a lot of positive headlines, you know, with, members of Congress and agency personnel that we're going to work together and, and get this thing done. But it truly is. I mean, the clock is ticking. You know, September 30th isn't too far away now. And uh, a couple of days ago, I had the opportunity to visit with Montana U.S. Senator John Tester, who's had quite a few field hearings, if you will, across big sky country. And we talked about what he's hearing from some of those farmers and ranchers who have attended some of his public meetings. From 30,000 feet, don't screw it up. I mean, the, cur the, the current farm bill is working pretty darn well, and we don't want to screw it up. But more specifically, conservation programs, programs like EQUIP, really, really important. Need to make sure they're voluntary. Um, need to have a, a better reference price. The last farm bill was written in 2018. I think the reference price for wheat's about five and a half. Things have changed since 2018. That needs to be bumped up. And what I hear every time, without... Uh, it happens every, every mouth that opens is crop insurance is really important. We got to have that safety net. And if you can do some things to expand a few more crops on it, like say a cover crop or a camelina, please do because uh, the, the, the landscape and production agriculture in Montana has changed a lot over the last couple of decades, uh, you know, where it used to just be wheat and barley and oats. Now we're raising a lot of pulse crops. We're raising a lot of oil seeds. We've got cover crops going on. So, you know, make sure the crop insurance meets the needs of the of the farmers that are out there. Those are probably the three different buckets uh, that, 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 that uh, I've been focused on with the Ag Committee. Again, a huge headline lane here in farm and ranch country as the current farm bill will expire on September 30th. And of course, members of Congress right now on a recess for the 4th of July holiday but time is running out because they'll go back to work for just a little bit and then they'll head into their very long August recess, which only leaves them a few, a few days in the month of September to get a lot of work done. And sometimes, as we both know, agricultural policy doesn't necessarily rise to the top of priorities in the nation's capital. Very, very true. Well, uh, Hopefully harvest is wrapped up by the time <laughs> farm bill, uh, the farm bill negotiations are finalized here. And 
Speaking of harvest, I know in the Southern Plains, it, uh, the uh, winter wheat crop, uh, that, that's getting harvested, uh, uh, progress going there. A lot of storms going through that region. But again, that crop really impacted by drought and freeze, especially there in the Southern Plains, parts of Texas, Kansas, and Oklahoma. But uh, the spring wheat crop, it's actually not in very good shape. And on a historic level, things, uh, things are... Uh, rating wise are, are some of the lowest uh, crop condition ratings in in several decades uh let, let's check in with usda's uh, brad rippy and, and see exactly how that uh, spring wheat crop is shaping up here this uh, this summer we do have a crop that's not in the greatest of shape it's okay but it's only 50 percent good to excellent 12 percent very poor to poor not much change from last week but that is below last year's numbers when we were sitting at 59 percent good to excellent and eight percent very poor to poor breaking it down by state we do see south dakota with the lowest rated spring wheat currently 33 percent of the crop very poor to poor in that state now, uh, other states like North Dakota, 16% of the spring wheat rated poor to very poor, 35% fair, and 49% good to excellent. Over in Washington state, 15% of the crop rated poor to very poor and 47% good to excellent. Montana, though, actually shaping up pretty good, and the drought monitor really improving in that neck of the nation. Montana seeing just 2% of the crop rated poor to very poor, 49% fair, and 49 percent good and actually it's just two percent poor there's not even a very poor rating on that just to correct myself so uh out out my door the spring wheat looks really good where, where our neighbors have planted uh here this year um so i i'm crossing our fingers that producers are able to get a good crop put up but uh, uh i really wish the prices were reflecting that it's just uh this past week was a roller coaster for those wheat prices. Uh, just depend corn really drug them down, brought them up, and, and issues in the Black Sea. So um, I, I know we share markets a lot on our radio and TV programs throughout the week, but uh, it's just been interesting watching those grain markets really play off the corn in the Black Sea region. Yeah, it sure has. And of course, I mean, our own production troubles or concerns here at home along with those Black Sea issues uh, last year were really what drove the wheat market to some of their highest levels in, in, in recent years. And, you know, this time of the year, even with, you know, crop quality issues, like you just mentioned, we're still, we're in the winter wheat harvest. There's all, you know, since the beginning of time, there's always been harvest pressure on prices. And, you know, uh, there's gonna be harvest pressure continuing probably this summer. Uh, as we approach spring wheat harvest, uh, you know, in, in a month and a half, two months from now. But bottom line is the U.S. wheat production number, no matter how you look at it, what state you're talking about, is, uh, isn't in the greatest shape supply-wise. Yep, very true. Well, we're going to talk about one of those grain corridors here in the United States that uh, has been the center of a lot of political discussion and advocacy work, both pro and con when it comes to having uh, grain and other items moved down through the Snake River dams. Uh, that's a top issue we've been covering for quite some time. Russell and the crew have put together a nice report on that. Uh, we're going to come back with that as our feature conversation to wrap up today's uh, agriculture headlines and conversations here on the Western Ag Network. But first, these words from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. When it comes to the beef business, there's no room for gray area. The decisions being made in Washington affect the future of the beef industry, the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers. 
Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows there's what benefits cattlemen and there's what doesn't. Visit ncba.org to learn more. Well, as we come back to our conversation today, discussing all the uh, issues that we've covered, and this is just a small portion of the ag issues we've covered on radio, TV, and digital this week, but uh, uh, enjoying bringing you this coverage here on Sunday or whenever you're tuning into the Western Ag Network on YouTube, Facebook, and on our podcast platform at the Lancast Ag Podcast. But Russ, uh, we, we've been teasing it throughout uh, the show today, but the Snake River Dams, uh, a big topic uh, in, in the West in terms of conservation and stewardship and feeding the world and getting grain down uh, to, the, to the ports. Uh, give, give us a quick overview before uh, we, we watch this feature that the crew has put together on this uh, subject. Well, as folks have heard all of us say time and time again, water truly is the lifeblood of, of the ag industry. And, uh, you know, utilizing uh, waterways, uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest, to transport some of these high quality commodities that we raise in states like Montana and North Dakota, Idaho, Washington and Oregon, using those waterways like the Columbia River in this case, using the Snake River in Washington state to get those barley and wheat crops to those export markets uh, in some of those terminal places like Vancouver and, and Portland is, is absolutely critical. But the Snake River has become a target by environmentalists who basically are, are blaming the dams for the salmon population's uh, uh, current you know, numbers when, when in all reality, you know, the Snake River and those dams have been in place for, for a lot, a lot of years. And not only are they helping farmers and ranchers raise those high quality uh, agricultural products, but they're providing a lot of electricity to not just rural areas of the Pacific Northwest, but certainly to some of those metropolitan areas like Seattle. And so recently we had the opportunity to visit with, uh, Columbia Grain International's Jeff Van Pevenage, as well as the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association's Heather Stebbings about this very big topic that impacts everybody here in the Pacific Northwest that truly has kind of pitted farmers against fish. For decades, environmentalists have argued that breaching the four dams in southeast Washington state is the best method to restore the threatened and endangered salmon populations of the Columbia Basin. Last year, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is tasked with salmon recovery efforts under the Endangered Species Act, recommended removal of the dams. However, proponents of the dams say the benefits of the dams can't be replaced. These dams carry 65% of the wheat that goes out of the P&W corridor. So they're important from the standpoint of that they're the most carbon neutral form of transportation for U.S. wheat. On the irrigation side, that's another area where we would see, you know, a huge loss for our region and nation. If dam breaching were to occur, we would lose the irrigation behind the Ice Harbor Dam in particular. And that irrigates about 50,000 acres here in the Northwest. So that supports about $2 billion in economic value in the region, uh, 10,000 jobs. 
Breaching the Snake River dams would require an act of Congress, with Democrats holding the majority in 2020 and the Biden administration signaling support for restoring historic salmon runs. It appeared dam removal was on the government's fast track. However, with Republicans winning back the majority in the House, Washington's GOP representatives Kathy McMorris-Rogers and Dan Newhouse introduced a bill this spring to help keep the dams in place. In the Senate, Republican Steve Daines of Montana and Idaho's Jim Risch sent forth similar legislation. Daines, Risch, and GOP Senator Mike Crapo of Idaho also recently sent a letter to Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm urging the administration to advocate for and preserve the Snake River dams. The senators wrote, Hydropower is a reliable and carbon-free resource that provides power to millions of Americans. Despite this, Certain voices in the Biden administration continue to advocate for breaching dams and reducing the system's benefits, which would have far-reaching and devastating consequences. According to Columbia Grain President and CEO Jeff Van Pevenage, losing hydro generation is only one of the energy impacts that would be brought about if the dams were breached. We cannot presently move enough rail transportation to the marketplace. And if we need the alternative forms of transportation like barge traffic, and truck traffic is not really an option from so far away, it would be the most expensive, the most polluting form of transportation to the marketplace, as well as the most inefficient form of transportation. Now, those energy costs would have a ripple effect, says Heather Stebbings of the Pacific Northwest Waterways Association. You eliminate the dams, you increase costs for energy because you eliminate hydropower, and that would ultimately either be absorbed by the farmer or passed along to the consumer, again, increasing the costs of our food that we buy at the grocery stores. How the dams impact the supply and prices at those grocery stores in the Northwest Population Centers is a task facing advocates for the dams. It's a challenge to to help folks understand on the west side um, the value that those projects provide because they're more disconnected from them. They're not right in their backyard. And so the more we can tell that story on the west side in particular, um, I think the more uh, the more will help folks understand the value of the projects. I think when they start comparing that to the joy of looking at the Orca Wells whales out in Puget Sound, which is seems to be one of the biggest environmentalist um, comments today is that, boy, the Orca Wells are going away because of the dams on the Snake River. I think when they have to start paying that food bill, they'll maybe get a little different view of what the value is to them from having these Snake River dams and from keeping U.S. food costs competitive. Van Pevenay says now's the time for farmers in the region to make sure that their voices are heard. And this isn't just a Washington, Idaho, Oregon thing. This spreads itself all the way into Montana because when the rail has to service all the Washington, Idaho grain, it means Montana grain could miss out, could get delayed, could see their costs increase as well. So it's not just a local thing, but they need to get together. They need to actively talk with their Congress people, whether that be at the local state level as well as the federal level that are out there. They need to have their voices heard and they need to be loud about it. And Lane, when it comes to this very important issue, at least for now, 
it looks like the tide has turned back in favor of farmers, grain shippers, and energy producers here in the Pacific Northwest. Well, thanks for that uh, report, Russell, and uh, for all of our viewers. If you want to watch that in more depth, uh, just visit us online at uh, Western Ag Network and on our YouTube page as well, if you'd like to share that uh, that report as well. But, you know, uh, we, we talk about fish, but uh, grizzly bear is also a big issue, and uh, uh, we'll play the video here. Uh, but uh, it, it wasn't Smokey the Bear going door-to-door -door in old Montana here this week. Uh, it was Mama Grizzly and two cubs going through a residential neighborhood on the prairie um you know we, we talk about these animals and the emotions that come in with the general public that doesn't have to live with an apex predator like a grizzly bear literally in your front yard uh gosh darn i mean you, you watch this video russ what uh, uh, uh what's your reaction what, what would it be like if a grizzly was going door to door in billings montana and not the the sparsely populated old montana yeah, it would sure in the head grab a, a lot more of attention of our mainstream media. I know that. And and uh, it would become a very serious issue. I mean, in places like Billings, where I'm at, Montana's largest city, you know, when it's a black bear in a tree or something that comes into the city limits, you know, everybody is, oh, it's cute and cuddly and, and whatnot. But a black bear is no grizzly bear. And there's a big, big difference. And I mean, the fact of the matter is, is there's just a lot more grizzlies, uh, not just in Montana, but the greater Yellowstone area. And that's why there's such a big push to try to get the apex predator like we've been able to do with wolves off of the federal endangered species list and return management back over to the individual states to try to get the numbers back under some sort of control. So you don't have a grizzly bear a mama grizzly bear and her cubs, you know, trucking through rural areas or one of these days, they are going to be going through bigger areas like Great Falls where you're at or Billings where I'm at or the Missoula's of the world or Jackson Hole, you know. There's enough like grizzlies that. in Missoula. There's enough grizzlies in Missoula. That's right. There it is. Yeah, we don't even want to talk about that. But Go Bobcats. <laughs> Well, Ross, I just wanted to share that video. Uh, that was one of the popular ones uh, popping up here this week. Uh, again, not Smokey the Bear going door to door there, uh, talking about forest fire. But, uh, you know, it's been a fun conversation here today. I just kind of shaking up uh, some of our top stories and conversations we've had throughout the week. But uh, happy Fourth of July coming up here, Ross. Yeah, happy Fourth of July to you and yours. And as we mentioned at the top of the program, truly is one of the biggest grilling times of the year so weather looks like it's going to cooperate of course we barbecue all year round in in places like western egg network country but most importantly get out and celebrate america's birthday and everything that we have available at our fingertips and and what america still truly stands for or for those of us making hay during this holiday season, uh, stay safe, take a little break, go see family and friends, but uh, uh, have little breakdowns and have a successful hay harvest <laughs> as well. Well, with that, friends, it'll do it for this uh, 
conversation with our ag headlines on the western ag network make sure and subscribe to us on youtube facebook and also if you're listening to the audio audio on the lancast ag podcast thanks for joining us on behalf of russell nimitz and the entire western ag network crew i'm lane northland have a great day and we'll catch you next time thank you for tuning into the lanecast with talking ag lane northland for more on lane check out his facebook page lane northland ag broadcaster and northlandcommunications.com don't forget to subscribe to the LaneCast on your Apple or Android devices. We look forward to joining you next time on the LaneCast.